0: In about 36 AD, a Jewish rabbi named Saul experienced a radical conversion to Christianity. I say radical because of the context in which this conversion took place. Saul was on a mission to persecute Jewish converts to Christianity that were living in the ancient city of Damascus in Syria. Saul was on a mission that was in direct opposition to his mentor, his rabbi, a man known in history as Gamaliel the Elder. Gamaliel was the leading authority in the religious ruling council of Judaism at that time in the city of Jerusalem. He was in a council that was called the Sanhedrin. And when the Christian movement first began in the early 30s AD, nearly 2000 years ago, It began as a movement among Jews in Jerusalem and the religious body in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. It initially sanctioned a shutdown of this new movement. But Gamaliel, this wise, learned rabbi, this leader within the Sanhedrin, he spoke some wisdom to the council. And he said this, it's recorded in Acts chapter five. He spoke to the council as they were wanting to really put to death some of the early Christian leaders, guys like Peter and John. And so he spoke to the council and he said, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God." At the time that Gamaliel said those words, Saul was a student of Gamaliel, but he didn't heed that counsel. Gamaliel said, don't fight against this movement of followers of Jesus of Nazareth, because if you do, and it is a work of God, you will find yourself to be fighting against God. And Saul didn't listen to Gamaliel. So he set out to destroy this movement, these people who were following this crucified man from Nazareth. But while he was on the mission to put this thing to rest in the city of Damascus, he had an encounter with the very Jesus that had been crucified. The crucified Jesus was not dead. He had, in fact, risen from the dead, just as his followers had said. And in glory and in power, Jesus appeared to Saul. And he says to him, that's recorded in Acts chapter 9, he says, Saul, why are you fighting against me? Why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard for you to try and move in this direction that I don't want you to move in? And in that moment, Saul of Tarsus was converted. And not too long after that period of time, Saul became known as Paul. He who formerly persecuted Christians began to preach the very faith that he once tried to destroy. I mean, that's one of those amazing transformation stories, one of those awesome reconciliation stories. It's one of those stories that you would imagine would end up as a story in a feature film. But to my knowledge, I don't think that's happened very much yet. So this one who used to be a persecutor now becomes a preacher. Paul became one of Christianity's greatest missionaries. He became one of the foremost authors of scripture in our Bibles, in the New Testament of our Bibles. Thirteen New Testament books are attributed to the Apostle Paul. About a decade after his aborted mission as a persecutor of Christians, following his conversion, Paul went on to be one of the greatest missionaries. He went on his first mission as a preacher. He went from persecutor to preacher. And he went with another Christian named Barnabas to bring the gospel to what we know of today as Southwest Turkey, a region that At that point in time, 2000 years ago, was called Galatia. You can read about this whole story of Paul and Barnabas ministering in the key cities of Galatia, Lystra and Iconium and Derbe in Acts chapter 13, or beginning at Acts chapter 13. A short time after that mission, Paul and another Christian named Silas went on a second missionary into Macedonia and Greece. And that story begins in Acts chapter 16. It's one of the most fascinating stories of scripture to follow the journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 is his first missionary journey. Acts chapter 16 is second missionary journey. And then a third missionary journey right around Acts chapter 18 and 19. And while he was on this second missionary journey, Paul went to Athens. And while he was in Athens, Paul spoke to the intelligentsia of Greece at what we are told is the Areopagus. In fact, you can go to the ruins of ancient Athens today and you can see this very rock outcropping outcropping called the Areopagus. And at this moment, here we are, a couple thousand years later, removed by 2,000 years and many thousands of miles from that, that place and that event. I believe that Paul's message to the people there in Athens is an important one for us today. I once thought that the message that Paul gave to the intelligentsia of Athens 2,000 years ago, not only did I think this, but I taught this. I once thought that Paul's message there that's recorded in Acts chapter 17 was less than effectual, maybe not all that impactful. I thought that because after Paul had been in Athens and he went to Corinth, it seems like his methodology was different. His approach seems to have changed as he moves from Athens to Corinth. And it seems like he decided that the the way that he tried to approach preaching the gospel to the very smart philosophers of Athens, maybe he thought it didn't work and he made a change as he was going to Corinth. So I thought that and I taught that in the past. And in one way, I still think that that might be true, but I don't think that it is good to minimize the importance of Paul's words in Athens. What Paul speaks in Acts chapter 17 to this gathering of very smart philosophers there in the city of Athens is, I believe, important. It was important 2,000 years ago, and I think that it it is at least as important and maybe more important for this moment, this cultural moment that we find ourselves living in today. Paul's Athenian discourse, it is super important, and we are going to be Taking some time this month to step back a bit and to revisit the basics, the basics of our faith. And as we revisit the basics of our faith, I want to key in on this passage in Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at it a little bit this week and a little bit more next week. But before I do, there needs to be a little bit of a a setup, a little context, if you will. Humans throughout all of history and in every place and under virtually every culture have always looked out at this world around us that we live in. And they've come to the conclusion that there is something more to all of this than what we can see or perceive on the surface. Even in this postmodern and science-saturated hyper-technical and apparently advanced culture that we live in here in the 21st century. We look out at the world and we want to try to get under the surface or, if you will, beyond the bubble of this universe that we live in and to see what is behind it. Why do we do this? Why is there this impulse toward transcendence? Why is it that we have what some have referred to as a religious impulse? We look at all the things of this world and there seems to be this, this pull or this push in us to move us towards something bigger and beyond this universe, to, to be in awe of everything. There's a religious impulse. Why do we look at all of this, no matter our background or our culture at virtually every time in human history and conclude that there seems to be something more to reality than what we can perceive with our senses. If you study ancient cultures and even other cultures around the world today, you can see that this impulse is very, very real. It it is acutely there in ancient cultures as you study ancient cultures like the ancient Greeks ancient athens is a good example of this but we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later so again why do we tend toward transcendence you kind of need to wrestle with that question even the atheists or those who are very much focused on science being the answer for everything even they have to wrestle with these challenging questions and when you look at the answers to some of these questions among the atheists or the scientific community of our day, they don't always have the greatest answers to these questions. Well, the biblical answer for this question is actually rather simple. 4,000 years ago, King David of Israel, he observed something that is an answer to this question. Why do we seem to have this pull towards transcendence or towards a religious impulse? King David says this in the Psalms in Psalm 19 beginning at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech and night unto night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Theologians look at this as the basis for what they generally refer to as general revelation. In his letter to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul, who is the one who's speaking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. What may be known of God is manifested in us. It's manifested to humans for God has shown it to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they or we are without excuse. The Bible answers the question of why the religious impulse or why this tendency towards transcendence by saying that creation and not just creation, but consciousness, our awareness of life and our, our desire to know things about this life, so creation and consciousness and our conscience—they they beg for us to look deeper, to look deeper than the subatomic particles of atoms and fermions and neutrinos, and to look further than black holes and dark matter. All of these things in the world, creation and consciousness and conscience, they beg for us to look beyond the things on the edge of the universe and deeper down below subatomic particles to try and find answers to these questions. So here is the key. God made us and everything in such a way that we would be compelled to seek. If we're going to talk about first things first, which is the the series that we are going through right now, stepping back and kind of thinking about the basics of, of why we believe in God and what we believe as Christians. So if we're gonna talk about first things first, then I think it's important for us to begin with this. And this is actually what Paul says to, the gathering of Athenians there in Acts chapter 17. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 27. Paul says this, he, God, did this that they, or we, might seek God and perhaps that we might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. That That's ultimately where we're going to be going as we look at Acts chapter 17 a little bit more this week and Next week. So, why do we have this religious impulse? Well, I believe that God made us in such a way that we would be compelled by creation and consciousness and conscience to to dig deeper, to seek out for Him. Why did He make us this way? So, for the very purpose that we might seek for Him, so that we might find Him. So, I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's where we're going. But here's the problem for some reason, and there is a reason according to the Bible, but we'll talk about this a little bit later we, when we are confronted with the evidence of creation and consciousness and conscience, we default to the wrong conclusions. Again, back to the book of Romans chapter one, Paul writes about this very thing. And he says that the invisible things of God, they are clearly seen and revealed through creation and conscience and consciousness. And then he says this in Romans chapter one, verse 21, although they, humanity, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became as fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, like birds or four-footed animals and creeping things. The, the problem isn't the stunning evidence in creation or consciousness or conscience. The, the evidence is there, but the problem is that we, when we are presented with the evidence, we default to standing in awe of these things, creation and conscience and consciousness and worshiping these human things and human ingenuity more than the God who made these things. Just as Paul says, he goes on in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. This is what the people of Athens did 2,000 years ago. You know what is right above the, the Areopagus where Paul is speaking to the Athenian philosophers of his day. If you, if you ever have a chance to go to Athens, and I've been there twice. It's a, a beautiful place. but right below, or I'm sorry, right above the Areopagus where Paul spoke in Acts chapter 17 is the most prominent feature of the city of Athens, and you can see it from everywhere. It's Its ruins are beautiful today, and they were a wonder of the world in ancient times. The Acropolis of Athens is right there in the center of this whole complex. It was the center of Athenian worship. And there were temples and altars that were scattered there on top of the Acropolis and throughout the city of Athens. The Athenians of the first century, they believed that the world was governed by and a product of a pantheon of gods. They had names for these gods, names like Zeus and Poseidon and Demeter and Athena, Athens named after Athena, Apollo and Artemis and Ares and all these different names that were given to these gods, Dionysus. and, and they were worshiping all these different gods, but they were concerned. Not only did they have temples and altars to these gods that they knew, but they were concerned that there were other gods that maybe they had forgotten, that they had missed. And so in case that they not miss one of the gods, they, they even had an altar. Paul talks about it in Acts chapter 17. They had altars throughout the city of Athens to the unknown god. And, and that's what we want to, or that's what I want to consider a little bit today, the unknown God. Now, by the way, though we consider ourselves advanced and progressive in 2021, we, we still worship the same things that the Athenians did 2000 years ago. We just don't maybe call them by the same names and we maybe don't worship them in the exact same ways that they did. But, but we still are following after many of the same false gods. The, the gods like, Athena and Apollo in Greece, they had different names in Rome and they have different names today, but they're basically the same things that people worship or are in awe of today. People think the world is governed by these things or that this is what we need to give ourselves to to have success or make it in life. So Paul said to the intelligentsia of Athens as he was there in the city of 2000 years ago, he said, men of Athens, I see, that you are extremely religious in every respect. And, and we really are no different. We, we even if we find ourselves, uh, if you meet someone in your neighborhood or at work or at school who says they don't believe in God, they're still very religious. And in our seeking, we tend to arrive at the wrong destinations. Everybody's seeking for something in this world, even if they say they don't believe in God or they don't go to church. But a lot of times they're, they're seeking after things, but they end up in the wrong place. Some of you hearing this, you know exactly what I am talking about. You tried in your life to find maybe not God, but you tried to find transcendence and you tried to find peace or meaning or fulfillment, something about the world, um, your awareness of it, your consciousness and your conscience compelled you to look for something bigger than what you had right before you or what you already had in your life. And so you went seeking for those things, but you came to many wrong destinations, many wrong conclusions along the way. Why is that? Why, though everything about creation and consciousness and conscience compel us to seek, why, when we begin to seek, do we find ourselves in the wrong place after we've been seeking? Why do we come to the wrong conclusions? Well, because as good as the evidence of creation or consciousness and conscience are, I would suggest to you that they are incomplete. Now, this this evidence, creation, consciousness, conscience, and so forth, is what we call general revelation. And general revelation, it is powerful, but it is insufficient. We spend billions of dollars and tons of human capital, our energy and efforts and time to study The data of creation and consciousness and conscience and our studies have yielded amazing things. Just think about all of the amazing discoveries that humans have made, especially in the last several hundred years. This world is a wonder. This universe that we live in is awesome. And we continue to make amazing discoveries as we look into all the different things that we can find in this cosmos that we live in. But as the wise philosopher Bono, observed. We still haven't found what it is that we're exactly looking for. Why is that? Because the answer to the question, you know, what is it that I'm really wanting, really looking for? The the true answers, the greatest answers are not found in the box or in the bubble of this cosmos. The answer, it transcends creation and consciousness and conscience. And not only is the evidence of creation, consciousness, and conscience insufficient, but the instruments, that we are using to study the evidence, that's that's us, our brains, our abilities, we are broken and we're faulty. When considering the evidence, we tend toward wrong conclusions because of many times wrong motives and wrong presuppositions. What do I mean by this? Well, let me just give you one example. In in everything that we see around us and everything that we're able to study around us scientifically, the evidence for design is phenomenal. The fine-tuning of the universe, the amazing complexity of DNA, the remarkable structure in physics, it all looks that it has intentionality, that it is intelligently and teleologically designed. Teleologically means that it's designed with a purpose. So when we look at everything around us, the The structure and the apparent design, it seems like it was made for a reason. But if you come to the study of these things with the presupposition, the conclusion beforehand that there is no God, which is what many in the scientific community do today, then your conclusions are always going to be off. So even if you do find fine tuning or even if you do find, you know, what seems to be design in the structures of DNA or physics, then you have to assume, well, it it can't possibly be God because your presupposition, your, your conclusion beforehand is that there is no God. We like to say in 2021, follow the science, but many times we don't do that. So the evidence can sometimes be insufficient. And those that are assessing the evidence, you and me, we are broken and biased, which means that we do need something more than just general revelation than the heavens declaring the glory of god and the earth showing forth his handiwork but as i said previously general revelation it it is wonderful it can inform us that there is something more something beyond what we see or sense with our senses general revelation can tell us that we should expect certain things about this something more but General revelation gives us an incomplete understanding of what that something more is and what those certain things that we should expect are. However, if we are careful and sincere in our search, we will discover the true and greatest truths of reality. So let me sum this up a little bit by saying that general revelation, What David talks about in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. And what Paul talks about in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. General revelation reveals a number of very important things. I believe that at least general revelation reveals first that God is, that he exists. Secondly, general revelation reveals that God is powerful, that God has resources and the ability to make everything that we see. Just imagine that for a moment. What would God have to be like if there is a God? And I I believe that creation suggests that the creator exists. If there is a God, what kind of power would he have to have to be able to make all of these things? So he has great resources and great power. But the third thing that general revelation reveals is that this God who exists and has great power and resources, he is intelligent. He knows how to put everything together. So, it reveals those three things at the very least that God is, that He is powerful, and that He is intelligent. And furthermore, I would say that I believe that when you consider creation, just look around at the moon and all the stars and everything that is in this world, when you look at creation or you consider consciousness, your awareness, your knowledge that you know things and that you know yourself and that you know the things around you. So creation and consciousness and conscience, your ability to discern what is good or bad or light or dark or right or wrong, creation, consciousness, conscience. From those things, I would suggest that we can deduce or we can expect what this God who exists and who is powerful and who is intelligent, what this God is like. What is he like? Well, I would suggest that When you look at everything around us and when you consider your makeup, your conscience, your consciousness, then you begin to infer from these things that this God who exists and is powerful and is intelligent, you begin to infer that he is moral because we are moral. We have an innate sense of right and wrong. And this is a challenge for those in the philosophical atheistic community or even scientific atheistic community. Where do we get this moral sensibility? I would suggest to you that it tells us something about the creator who exists and who is powerful and who is intelligent. We infer from our conscience and from our consciousness that we are moral. Secondly, we infer that this God, he loves beauty because we are gripped by aesthetics And he, I would suggest, is relational because we thrive when we are in relationship. And I would suggest that not only is he relational, but that we see that he, as we see his likeness imprinted upon us, he wants to be known. He wants to love and be loved. All of these things, I believe, are known by inference from consciousness and conscience. And when we look at the creation around us, and there's many more things than just the fact of morality and you know, truth and beauty and so forth. There are many things that we can infer, infer about God as we look at the cosmos around us. But my goal here is to introduce you to the unknown God he is the unknown god that paul speaks of in acts chapter 17 paul is aiming in this passage which we'll look at a little bit more next week he's aiming to help the people that were the the intelligentsia of his day of paul's day he's helping them to know who is this unknown god what is this unknown god like and why should you know him but I, but though god is the unknown god of acts chapter 17 it's important for us to understand that he's not unknowable but there are many people even today just as there was in Paul's day that still don't know him and this is exactly what Paul endeavored to to make clear 2000 years ago in Athens. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 22. We read there, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And all of this that I've said so far, I think is really, really important as a lead up. Several years ago, a person asked me, why do you believe in God? And, and all of this in Acts chapter 17 and all the things that I've been throwing out here about general revelation and being able to understand that God is and that he is powerful and that he is intelligent and that from what we see in consciousness and conscience, We can deduce that he is moral and that he is good and that he is into beauty and all these things and wants to be known. So this person asked me several years ago, why do you believe in God? And and these are the things that, that came to mind and the things that I shared with him. Creation, consciousness, and conscience tell me that there is a creator. And when I look at all of these things, I can deduce that he exists and that he is powerful. And I can infer that he is true and good and beautiful. And I believe he's also loving. And since both the Bible and science tell us that the universe, this universe that we live in is not eternal, it's not been here forever. It had a beginning and science. They have their different ideas about when it began and how it began 13.8 billion years ago, all these different things, but both science and the Bible tell us that this universe had a beginning. And since that is true, if it is true, as both the Bible and science say that the universe had a beginning, notice this, Buddhism is out because Buddhism believes that everything is eternal. And since God must then exist independently, if this all had a beginning, then the one who set it in motion needs to exist independently from this universe, from his creation, then that means that Hinduism is out because the gods of Hinduism exist within this cosmos and if God is loving as he is revealed in the scriptures and as I believe that your consciousness and your conscience make you aware of the fact that God is loving then that means that Islam is out and if God is moral just as you have strong moral sensibilities God is also moral and if God is moral then that means that the pagan gods Dionysus and Athena and all these different other gods that were worshipped by the pagans they they are out because they were not moral you see all of these things are as they are because they are meant to stir you and me to seek Just as Acts chapter 17 says, so that we might seek for the Lord in hope, that we might grope for him, search around for him in the dark, and so that we would find him and that you might know him. And in him, you would find the answers to the biggest and most important questions of life. What what are the biggest and most important questions of life that every single person Wrestles with at some level. You you may not interact with other people about these questions, but you think about these things when you are by yourself. And and they're the deep questions that every philosophy and worldview view must answer. The questions of identity: Who am I? The the question of purpose: Why am I here? The question of origin: Where did I come from? The question of destiny: Where do I go to after this? The question of Truth. What is true? The question of morality. What is right? The question of goodness or beauty. What is good and what is beautiful? These are the essential questions. And every worldview, every philosophy must have adequate answers to these fundamental questions and not only give the right answers to these super hard questions, but also have the right solutions to the most challenging problems that every single person faces. I'm sure you've noticed we live in a world that is not perfect, a world that has problems. And we want to know how to address those problems. And any coherent and compelling worldview or philosophy needs to answer these deep questions of identity and purpose and origin and destiny and morality and truth and goodness and beauty and all these important questions. And it needs to address the biggest problems that we're seeking for solutions to. Problems of suffering and the problems of evil and the problems of wickedness. How do we deal with those things? So every worldview and philosophy needs to address these things. And I want to suggest to you that Only Christianity answers these questions and brings solutions to these problems that are coherent and that are compelling. There's so much more that I want to talk about here in Acts chapter 17 about this unknown God and how Paul, as he goes there to Athens to speak to the intelligentsia of his day, to tell them about who this God is. We're gonna gonna look next week as we get into Acts chapter 17, a little bit more about what do we learn as we begin to move away from general revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork into what theologians would refer to as special revelation. What do we learn about God as we begin to move away from just observation of the world around us or inference from our own conscience and we begin to move into revelation And, and what is it that we find out about this God? What do we learn about him? So my goal in this series that we're going through called First Things First and I shared with you if you were here last week or you can watch the message online from last week, I was, I was making the point like why do we need to go back to the basics and I think that there's some good arguments in last week's message about why we need to go back to the basics but now we're moving into looking at what are the basics, what are the fundamental things about why we believe that there is a God and what does it mean that there is a God and how does he reveal himself. So. So these are the key things here in this passage. And my encouragement to you would be that you would read through Acts chapter 17 beginning at about verse 22 and just read through it slowly and carefully and prayerfully over the next week because next week we're gonna get a little bit more into this passage and consider what is it that Paul says to the people of Athens in that day 2000 years ago to tell them about who this God is and why they needed to know this important truth. These things are the basics. And these things, I think, at this moment that we find ourselves in as we're here in August 2021, I believe that this is, well, we just did a series on Esther. And you may remember back to the book of Esther that Esther's cousin said to her for such a time as this. And I think for such a time as this, God has a work that he wants us to do. And there are some questions, some challenges that people in our lives who have not yet come to the knowledge of, who the unknown God is, they haven't come to that knowledge yet. There are questions that they have and we need to be able to articulate answers for those. And that's why we're coming back to these very fundamental basic truths so that hopefully you would be able to give a compelling answer when someone asks you, why do you believe in God? Why should I believe in God? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. And as we look at creation and conscience and consciousness, and we begin to see from those things that God is and that he is powerful and that he is intelligent. And then we infer from our conscience that God seems to be relational and loving and good and moral and true and beautiful. These are the things that the Bible reveals about God as we're going to see. And these are the important truths that we need to grasp as those who believe in him and follow him. And so I hope that you'll come back with us next week, but, but make sure this week you read through Acts chapter 17. Father God, I pray that you would take these things and that you would stir an interest in whoever is listening to or watching this message. Stir an interest in us that we would begin to open the pages of scripture and, and try to be a little bit more thoughtful about what do we know about you? Why do we believe that you exist? God, reveal yourself to us through your creation. The heavens show forth your glory. Lord, reveal yourself to us. But Lord, help us to come to know you because you're not unknown insofar as you desire to be distant from us. You, you desire that we would know you and that we would have a relationship with you. So I pray that we would move away from not knowing you because we've not looked into these things. And we would look into these things and we get to know who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us. For we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.